This episode is brought to you by HP+. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are. Even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh, that is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. This episode is brought to you by PayPal. These days, choices are everywhere. Like, for instance, the milk in your coffee. Would you like it from a cow? A nut? A tree? Everyone wants options. And now your customers have a new option in the way they pay. With PayPal in person. Just generate your unique QR code in the PayPal app for them to scan. And start accepting PayPal in person today. Learn more at paypal.com slash us slash get QR code. Hello and welcome to episode 154 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I am Tom Mullen from washedupemo.com. Today, welcome Ian Mackay from Discord Records. You may also know him from bands like Fugazi, Minor Threat, Embrace, and The Evens. A few months ago, I asked a couple prior podcast guests, Brian Lowett from Love It Records and now Discord Records, and John Davis from Q Not You, if they thought an in-person interview could happen. Through their help, and a little timing of a personal wedding in D.C. set this plan in motion. As this podcast gets into its eighth year with no signs of slowing down, I thought it was time to have the person partly responsible for why I first got into straight edge, punk, hardcore, and the DIY ethos I continue to carry through my day job in the music industry at large. Ian couldn't have been more gracious, and after some back and forth and a nice Delta Airlines agent, I was there with enough time to do the interview and make the wedding later that day. I never expected to have the opportunity to talk to one of my heroes in this setting, and for Ian to spend a couple hours showing me around the Discord house, the archives, and then an interview will be remembered forever. This is episode 154 of the Washed Up Emo podcast with Ian Mackay from Discord Records. Ian Mackay, Discord House, May 24th, 2019. Talking with Tom from Washed Up Emo. Yeah, I hope that you always start your interviews with an, with an identification of who's talking, yes. how they pronounce their name, and where you are, and the date. Yes. The if pronounce- you don't, as, an arch- as a person who deals with archives, it's really frustrating. I've, been, I've gone through so many interviews where you just don't hear, like you don't have any idea where they are. And I think location is actually somewhat interesting. It's a, you know maybe it's a context. Important. Yeah, it's, it's nice to know where people are when you're the talking date, to them. People forget the date. That's they, the thing I'm or finding. Or the year. A lot of times they say, year. "Oh yeah, they say May 24th." How much time is spent archiving at Discord? I don't arrange my schedule and block, so I don't really know. In other words, like having you here and showing you around—that to me would be filed under archiving, right? Because that's the point of the archives—is to sh- be able to share stuff and show people, if not the actual. What's being archived, the actual process to give people an idea about maybe ways to organize things and make it more actually um, – so you can actually engage with what you have. I would I can say that for the last decade, I have put in an enormous amount of time into the archive work. Uh, there's a few factors that went into this decision on my part. One is in 2003, I had a good friend who uh, died, and 
another mutual friend um, was named executor. And I said, oh, so how'd that go? And he said, oh, what a gift. You know, he may have fucked up and killed himself, but he also was like super exacting in his, like he he enumerated everything he had and directed everything. So as an executor of the will, he just had to look at it and was already and he said, okay, this goes to this guy, this goes, this comics will go to here, blah, 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 the house goes to blah, blah. He just did the thing. And I thought about it, you know, there are a number of people have, you know, I've dealt with a lot of people dying, a lot of death, and and I've seen the uh, variety of um, um, circumstances that occur upon a death. When if Depending on whether somebody has a will or doesn't have a will, and even if they have a will, how well how clear the will is. Um, but mostly when people die, a lot of times it's just like their stuff. And what do you do with their stuff? I think most people's stuff means the things that they kind of like, that's their possessions. But in my case, um, because I'm almost 60, I'm 57 now. And because I've only lived in three houses, basically my entire life. And I own two of the houses and my father still lives in the first house, which is the Beecher street address. Um, I have managed to, accumulate a lot of materials and I'm not a hoarder. Like I don't keep trash. Um, but I have a lot of stuff because I thought like for me, my involvement with punk rock, um, the music thing that was going on, the, the social aspects of it, the, the musical aspects of it were, was super important. So I hung on to things cause I thought they were important. Like, you know, if I was showing you, the fanzine archive that I'm working on with John Davis from University of Maryland. John was also in Q Not You and Title Tracks. And I believe he was a, a guest on your on this yes. very show at one yeah. point. Anyway, um and you asked me why you know, why did you why do you have all these? I said, because people gave them to me. I thought this I'll hang on to it. I just put them on a shelf and I kept them, you know, straight and clean and uh I just thought it was interesting. I thought it was evidence of of a, of a society. And like all societies, eventually will be a lost society. And so you want to have some shards of the fucking pottery, right? To say like, yeah, these people are here. Uh, that's a nice thing to know. So I feel like the fanzine, I hung on to things. I thought this would be an interesting thing to have. Now, I hung on to these things largely in just boxes or on shelves. And I'm, I am pretty much the sole possessor of the knowledge of what everything is. Um, when I show you around, I can show you these really specific things. Say, well, this is this, this is this, this is that. I know that. Other people would have to guess that. Um, so after going through a series of, of dealing with people's deaths and thinking about it, I was like, oh, you know what? If if I get di- when I die, which will eventually, right, I'm going to die or soon, who knows? Either way, that stuff, like someone's got to deal with it. Now, technically, you know, it'd be Amy Farina, who I'm married to. Um, she's my next of kin. And that is a, like, I would, one would assume that she would be pretty bummed out that I was dead. And then to have to deal with this deal fucking with this madness. So do the world a favor and start to organize. And it just, once I started that process, um, started thinking about it like that, uh, it just dovetailed with a couple of other things. One was there was a, a fellow named um, Peter Alexic. Peter Alexic was a NYU archival art student, and he was 
work in the film department, I guess, and he was working with Jem Cohen, the filmmaker, who did the instrument movie with us. I went to high school with Jem. So he's trying to help Jem get all of his films in order. And he said to Jem, oh, sir, do you have your films anywhere else? And Jem said, actually, I have a lot of the instrument stuff down at Discord House. So Peter asked if he could come down to check out the Jim Cohen stuff. And, but when he saw my collection of audio and video and all stuff, he was like, wow, can I make you my final thesis? Wow. And Peter really, he spent probably three months living here and disorganizing and getting it straightened out. And he's a genius. And he was the one that really, he put the audio stuff, specifically the Fugazi recordings into some kind of order. He created a database and started the whole process that ultimately became the Fugazi Live series. It's possible he would have gotten there at some point, but really, um, it was his work that made it possible. Because once you get it cleaned up, you say, oh yeah, these are tools. We can do it. We can use this for that. But when they're all, when the tools are all just in a case closed up, you don't really know what you have. Yeah. And he was, he was able to sort of splay it out and make it more um, usable. And I think that he really inspired me a lot to continue that work. So I worked with a woman named Lindsay Hobbs on the flyers. I worked with a woman named um, Mary Noxon on my uh, vinyl stuff. And a woman named Nicole Prokopinko has worked with me on the correspondence and art, um, cover art and stuff like that. It just continues. It's kind of an unending process. I thought I would stop when I was 55 because at some point you got to stop yeah. um, dealing with the past. But it's not over yet. Got more work to do. There's just a lot of stuff here, you know. And what is it, you know, and the point, people say, what are you doing? Are you doing a book or what are you doing? And I think this is so typical that people think that, like, why are you doing this? Like, what is the end result? Well, the end result is for it to be organized. That's the end. That is what I'm doing it for. What it is, I'm not thinking like a book or a movie or whatever. Now, those things may come from that. It's easier to find something if someone said, I need this demo from it. You can find it. Yeah. Or, you know. Instead of. Maybe something will come from it. The point is, I work on what's, what's in front of me. That's what I do. So when you pulled up today, I was pulling weeds off this driveway, right? I work what's on front of me. You know, that's what I do. And that work, like, you know, today I was pulling the weeds out of the driveway, and that will mean that I can park more easily so I have to deal with, you know, whatever. Same way, if you organize your stuff, you don't know what might occur. But you can find it. Yeah, but I don't, I'm not thinking like this is, I, I think, I'm not, goal, I'm not a goal-oriented person, Period. Like my, or if I have a goals, they're very short. Like right now, my goal is to do this interview. <laughs> no, you've been saying everything. Let's let's go to work. Let's do it. Let's just yeah. do the thing. Yeah. You know, I quite enjoy, not to be presumptuous, but I, I'm, I'm going to say that it seemed like you were, you found that like engaging to hear those recordings, for instance. And you're like, well, that's cool, you know. Or you're looking through stuff like that's interesting. That's really satisfying for me to be able to share stuff. Otherwise, it's just me. Yeah. And it's nice when someone gives a fuck and then I can actually say like, well, here's something you might be interested in. I don't, it's not a commercial thing. It's more about the idea that the world is filled with mystery still. And I love that. Like I'm the guy who will listen to Beatles bootlegs. I've listened to like 70 hours of let it be sessions just because I'm, because me, you know, the, you know, they get back session, just endless them talking. and Exactly, yeah. I love that stuff. I love it. I love, I'm fascinated to hear process. So I think that, I don't know if people, this is not to compare our work to the Beatles' work at all. It's just to say that 
I think there are people who would be interested in like, well, this is cool. I don't know how... It helps tell the story. It helps give context. I think if you're hearing the banter back and forth and they say something different and then you hear the song differently instead of just hearing the song. Well, it just gives you a sense of the process, yeah. Yeah. I recoiled the word story because I think there's a lot of emphasis on story. You, I remember right you now. mentioned that. Yeah, I'm the not word. Feeling, I don't like that. Like, like, oh, just, you know, this, there's, everyone's story is so important. Uh, something's wrong with that, but I haven't quite put my finger on it. There's I something going on. I get what you mean. I mean, NPR has lost its mind about story. <laughs> everyone's like, oh, you know, there's so many stories and you know, people have their story. And I think, I don't know why people, why are people have, why, why stories? Why not actions? Like that's a, you know that's that's the question. Or your whole thing about not having an end. It's just this is what it is. This is what happened. That's what life is. Yeah, it clicked for me because yeah. I do archiving at work, and I do it for my podcast and my website. I'm archiving. I'm documenting a scene that wasn't documented, and now it is. But it made it hit me when. What scene was that? The if it was the '90s scene oh, when that. I was in college, okay, when I, yeah. just the the right. bands that I loved weren't talked about online, or you didn't see anything. Or not that much, right? I got you, but yeah. So and then I said, them. "Oh, wait, I know them because I knew the label. Let me talk to them." Right, 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 and right. And then right, I, right. you know, snowballed into right. So, this thing, but when, is this a popular podcast? Yes, I don't know. It's pretty niche, but I have people all over the world that listen. Great. I'm um, not saying I'm not I'm just wondering. I still have no idea whether this is like one of those things where, you know. It doesn't matter to me. It could be 10 people or 10,000 or 100,000. Yeah. Whatever. I'm happy to have a chat. It's definitely the for that era or those people that associate with punk and hardcore, you know, those bands. Right. It it intermixes. Got Um, it. So this is the sound of wood wood being knocked. (laughs) Just in terms of the one issue I've been having with uh, digital archiving is it's so totally dependent on operating systems. And since it's all witchcraft anyway, you know, it's hard to imagine. Like, paper in 1600, it bears some resemblance to paper today. But it'd be very hard for me to imagine that even 30 years from now, that whatever devices people are using are going to... Or the extension on the audio, whatever that whatever is. Whatever the devices are, the they're going to bear much of a resemblance of what people are doing today. I mean, one hopes that there's always will be people will continue to like, I think about the Fugazi live series, which is this enormous website. I mean, it's, you know, well over a thousand pages, so much work has gone into it, but if they change the operating system, it just doesn't exist anymore. That scares me. Yeah, it should. But I mean, but then I think, well, Nothing really exists anymore, anyway, so it's okay. <laughs> it's just, but you're try- I guess yeah. you're trying to put it in a place where, at, if someone finds it, they know what to do with it. I'm saying that right now, I have cassette tapes, for instance, that my grandmother recorded in 1970 or something, and they play just fine. And that's a format that, as long as there's cassette players, yeah, we're in business, right? And I feel like that when it comes to. Um, digital thing it's really changes like you and i were just looking i was showing you i have a table a desk full of weird old computers and part of the reason is that there are certain programs that just aren't going to operate on later operating systems and it's also interesting that with operating systems like i went into a i had a 90s laptop mid 90s laptop and i i was telling you earlier about how i'd I actually have to sit in the car because the only AC plug will work is a lighter plug. And I turned it on 
and when the, the screen came up, I was filled with a sense of um, it was really like nice because I remember it was like the my endorphins fired off because that was a laptop we toured with, so we would turn it on and we just gaze. Guess we would get our it was like early email like AOL stuff in the mid nineties. So I would the, the the mission was to take that computer and then you would get to a venue or a hotel, and then somewhere in Europe, and then you would. You know, we have to take the phone. We had to pick up the, the email using it when the, it was a dial-up thing. And we had to – I remember I had to – because the phone, the plugs are different, I would literally Adapters. take the – I would take the, the the fixture off the wall. And I had alligator clips. And I just bypassed their thing. Wow. Anyway, and then we'd get the mail and it was like manna. Like it was like just incredible. Like, oh, my God, all people are writing us all these letters and and – the, just seeing the screen, like the the way that the the desktop that I had, which was a sort of a textured, fake textured red thing, and seeing it just immediately, I feel the endorphin. I remember how excited I was to see that screen, and then I looked at it, and I had no idea how to open up anything because the operating system is so different. Wow! And it made me realize that part of computer um, computers. The way the technology works is that they're constantly introducing new operating systems, and unlike a lot of things, uh, there's something about this particular um, interaction that erases what came before. So, like I can get around on a, a Mac now, but if you go to a Mac that's twenty some years old or thirty years old. It is really hard to figure out. It's totally different. What it is, yeah, it's so interesting. My brain, even though at that time I was, I knew it's like unlike anything. It's very interesting to was me. Was that the computer that was an instrument? The one you're sitting in one of the hotel rooms and you're looking over email and it's got uh, probably it's like, it, is it black clamshell one? Yeah, yeah, it's probably. Yeah. Um, anyway, just really interesting to think about the kind of what how internet or how the computer technology operating systems how they like the way we engage with them um which is very different than more like you know say recording stuff or like you know it takes a little while to get up to speed on things but this is literally i could not remember how to to navigate this i mean i finally figured out by just you know which is also i guess part of the genius of of computers that is intuitive in some degree but um Anyway, it's interesting that I think that the archiving, so the, in terms of archiving digitally, it's just a matter of redundancy, you know, because you just have to keep copying and copying and copying. I don't, I don't mess around with the cloud um, for most things. Um, for a variety so just have of those reasons. drives. I have those drives, but then I have mirror drives that live across the street at the other office. So I have the. The drives, and then I have every one of the drives is mirrored, and every week or so I'll do like I'll mirror, I'll update them, and then I put them in a different location, and then every five years I replace them all. Exactly, so that's the thing people forget. Yeah, that they'll go. Yeah, so I have a lot of decommissioned drives. They all still work fine. They could be, you know, it's weird. Some of them just keep working, but I don't hit them that hard. Yeah, you know, like especially the ones that are the storage ones. They just. They don't get played at all, right? They don't get you or played. They don't get tapped. I don't yeah. know what you call it, but um, but redundancy is kind of that's it. I don't know what else to. 
But I think for um, people today or even bands, they're not thinking about that. They think it's on their phone. They think it's there forever. They upload it to whatever website. That website could go away tomorrow. That you're, You could drop your phone and lose everything. And I think there's a, a not a sense of this needs to be documented. It's almost like, well, it's going to be here forever when it really isn't. I don't know if that's a matter. I mean, it may be exacerbated by the way by um I might be exacerbated by the culture the internet like the techno technological culture at the moment but I think that there's in the early 80s punk scene people are not thinking like this stuff is something we're going to keep people just threw their shit away or sold it they didn't think twice about it they were right so I don't think I think this is more about individual like there's certain people who have librarian brains or something I seem to be one of those people yeah and Jeff Nelson Who's the other, you know, the co-owner and founder of Discord Records, drummer Meyer Threat, and among you know, among other things, Jeff, he also like he and I became friends in high school, um, and there's just something about like our brains, like we both were really like we're kind of into collecting, but not in the same sense. Like I, like there's a great, I, there's he and I used to go out digging for soda bottles, old soda bottles, because you can find them. Like if you go, like if you're near like a, um, if you're like there's like a road, a country road, and there's maybe a corner, like a hard corner. If you go five feet out or six feet into the woods by that wood, you dig down because people throw their bottles out right. the window. So you just dig and you find soda bottles. And I used to love going finding soda bottles with him. They just cool old fifties and sixties painted. Um, I love finding stuff like that. And then he started getting it, but he would just go buy the bottles. And that's where the difference between, like he's a collector that will go buy the stuff. You're going to go find it. I'm the only, I don't want it if I can't find it. Yeah. Like I'm not buying anything. Like to me, the joy was really, the joy was not having it. The joy was seeking it. And that's pretty much the way my life is. So seeking and then- The work. Yeah. yeah. It's the work. I'm not, it's not the result. I'm not goal-oriented. I mean, one of your quotes, I think it was in, this is our work. No one else is going to document. We should do it. Where did I say that? This was in the Husky, the Huck store. There was a Huck.com or something. Oh, yeah. Huck from Britain. Yeah. Nice people. But that, that quote kind of stuck with me because it's, 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 it's on you to do it. Yeah. Because I have the stuff. It's my crap here. So, yeah. One thing about DC, the punk scene here. We were documentarians. People really, I don't know. I remember Biafra came here. He used to stay here at the house, Biafra. And he was looking through our tapes and he said, man, I cannot believe how much documentation you have of your own bands. And he said, like, why did you guys record, like all of you guys recorded all of your songs? And I think the reason for this is, is that in cities where music business was like New York or San Francisco, LA, Boston, whatever, bands would save up money and they would go to the studio and they would record two or three of their best songs to make a demo, which they would then pitch to a label to get the label to pay for a recording a whole album or something. But in Washington, there is no music business like that. <laughs> and you're not pitching shit, right? So Let's if you're a band it. and you've written... A bunch of songs. Did you get near a device that will record your stuff? You want it all on tape. It's one. You, you got to do it. You got to seize the moment. 
So anytime we got near a studio, we would record everything. We weren't no reason to hold back because the band was probably going to break up anyway. Yeah. So get it down. But I think that it was pri- primarily or or largely could be tied to the fact that there was no music industry in this town, and that basically if we wanted something, we had to make it ourselves. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so people here. There's a lot of people who have like incredible collections. You know, John Stav, who you know, he's a singer of Government Issue. He died a few years ago, um, and I'm, you know, I'm was of course a very dear friend, and I'm close with his wife. And um, so at some point, I went over to help her look through some stuff. And John's collection was like so organized, like wow. he had incredible stuff, and he was so. I think I think really. For the people here, it was important. It just meant something, and so for each of us had our. So I think we people hung on to it because it was like they're like yearbooks, you know. Yeah, something in it for us. And actually, when you think about the Discord label, the label was started by documenting a record, you know, a recording by a band that had broken up, and we could have easily split the money up. That we had eight hundred bucks, we could have taken two hundred dollars each. Um. Mm. We could have just made cassette copies of the recording we'd made. It'd be done. It'd be over. But I think we felt like, well, this was really important for us and for the, our friends. So let's make something that you can hold in your hand as a, I mean, but it was a document. The, it was a document. And Discord is a label. Like, I think that, again, people, like, we don't approach music, first off, I don't. I hate the music business, so that makes it <laughs> just for the gift. You know, I still. I don't. The way the typical way of doing things is not the way we do things. But I think in many labels, like with new bands, there's this sort of concept that you release a record from a band to try to make something happen for that band. So it's speculative. But from my point of view. Like the bands make something happen and we document that. It's a reversal. Like we say we're not we're not trying to put stuff out to make something like make something occur. Is that we saw something occur and we want people to hear about it. It's just a different way of looking at it. Yeah. But it's the same way. Like most most labels and bands will talk about a band will tour um to in support of a record. Well just think about that. Why would human beings go on the road to support a piece of plastic or a piece of digital information in the air? That just seems weird. Like, is that so? Is that product? Was that the whole? That's what all this is about—the thing that gets sold. I say that the records are in support of the tour. They're in support of sharing with people what this music sounds like, so they have a reason to go see the band. It's just a reverse, just a different way of looking at it. Is, it's yeah. a reversal. And it's funny when you, I mean, again, like our, because the industry and capitalism and all that stuff is so central to our way of living that, of course, it's the thing that gets sold that seems to be, that takes precedence over everything. You know, fuck that. Versus this, the, the artist as a whole, right? It's music. Yeah. yeah. It's music. So the records exist, I think, to be. As Fugazi used to say, our mantra was, the records are the menu, the show is the meal. That was our concept. 
So people could listen to the records and hear the songs, but if they saw us live, they would get them they would get them in a whole other context. But because they had a sense of the song, they could really see the way the songs developed or how they they've, whether they've sped up or slowed down or they're louder or whatever whatever. Yeah. But you had but you were in on it. You knew kind of you, there was a sense of what was going on. Um but never once did we ever think well, by doing this show, we'll sell more records. That just seems absurd. Or by saving this zine, I'm going to use it sometime. Or I'm going to, like, a kid giving you a zine and just being like, I'm going to save this to save. I mean, just overall, on a, on a tour yeah. date, all those things are happening. You're in your journal that you showed yeah. me. You know, writing those things down. Yeah. It, just jotting. You were doing it because... It seemed important to me. I also wanted to remember it. You know. I think that's really important. And I don't. I, again, yeah. I just love that that was something that you thought about at the beginning. Like the, if you could talk about the journals a little bit, like that you would you would have the tour dates and the people's you know yeah. information, like those. Well, my mother. To- yeah, my mother said to me many years ago. She said, uh, "If you write it down, you don't have to remember it." So it took me a while to get really up to speed with my journals. By the mid '80s, I was writing. Like Every I'm day? actually typing up my 1985 journals right now. So I just talked about like the first Right to Springs. Actually, that was 84. But the first Embrace show, I just actually just typed about the first Embrace show. And I talked about when we decided to call the band Embrace. It's interesting. Like, so, and what's interesting is that when you do this, and my mother is correct in thinking that like, if you write it down, then your brain is released for having to remember it. Ironically, if you write it down, you probably will remember it. Because it leaves a trail um, when you actually commit something to paper or whatever. Um, I, I think the same is true when you type something up. I'm not sure. I think there's something about the physical act of writing that leaves a, tra- a trail in your brain. I'll, I'll give you an example of, of what I'm talking about. Some years ago, I, I had a talk at UConn up in um, Connecticut, and and I was I took a train up to New Haven and I rented a car to drive up to um, Stores, which is the town that UConn is in. And um, I was driving up, I think it was 93, um, I-93, which I had done many times before. Prior to leaving, you know, historically, I would call people and get, get direction from them. But this is the era of MapQuest, so I just printed out the direction from MapQuest. This is probably 15 or yeah, 15 years ago, I guess. Um, so I'm driving. I've been on this road many times. I've been to Yukon plenty of times. And I had this sense of disorientation or dislocation, a really profound sense of it. Mm-hmm. I was just driving. And I couldn't, I didn't know where I was going. And I was like, what is that about? You know, like, like what, like, why, why, why am I feeling that? And I realized that historically I would call somebody and they would tell me how to get there and they would tell me and I would write it down. So I am actually, while I'm writing it down, I'm drawing a trail in my head. It's verbal, but that's the way, like, that's the way humans used to explain things. That you go down here, you know, if you're looking for the, the you know, if you're a hunter and you say, go down to the big rock, you go to you yeah. know, there. So because I was just printing out the direction I was having no engagement with them. I had to keep looking down at them, and plus I started wearing reading glasses at that point, and I had to you know take the glasses off, and it was raining, and it was just fucking a nightmare. Um, so now and since then, 
like I will get directions from what I don't have a smartphone, but I'll use directions from whatever, like Google or whoever, the, write whatever. Them down, write down I write them down. I just literally it and write them down. And I always know where I'm going. It's just a different way of doing things. That's why today I looked at the directions on my phone, but visualized the, the numbers right. and then put the phone away. And it, yes, it told me, but at least I knew I'm looking for right. X number. Right. I need exit seven. Right. And instead of waiting. Right. Exactly. You don't know what's going to like. What's going to happen? So when, as an aside, I've been thinking a lot about this also, that when I drive or travel, I think of myself as a basically a dot moving on a map. I think with GPS and people following the directions that they think of themselves not as a dot, but the world moves around them. Like they're not a dot moving on a map, but they're on a, they're fixed. And then the world is moving around them. It's not better or worse. I'm not just to be clear. I am not a Luddite. I just, like I just this is I me. Mean, I may have come at the way things differently, so I'm not like oh you know this is this crazy this new technology. It's just something to think about. That's all. I don't well, have any. Someone asked me what I'm listening to, and all I've been using is Spotify or Apple. I don't remember. Right. But if someone we have a session where we're listening to vinyl, or we've got my CDs out, and someone asks me, I'm going to remember that right easier. Of course. Yeah, I mean, I, don't, I, don't, I can't remember what I typed in, right, or what was playing. Well, this is what's so interesting. So I'm wondering now, like, because I wrote this stuff down in the '80s, and now I'm typing it up. I wondered if I had just typed up the journal, whether I would literally the the motion of typing. I can't imagine it would leave the same kind of mental map. Isn't as it writing. more like direct versus? Even if you're not cursive, I'm just trying to think yeah. this out. Like, is it more of a flow? Well, I think the point is, what do you when you write? Are you still journaling? I don't never journal. Or journal, like write down a <laughs> journal. Uh, no, not really. I stopped about ninety, mid nineties. First of all, I was hard because I was touring all the time. It was just really, and when I say touring, we it was no bus. Like you know, we did all like I did almost all the driving for one of the vehicles. You know, I we just worked. Like we drive all day, we go to the gig, sound check, go to dinner, come back, hang out, talk to people, play the show, drive a few more hours, go to the hotel, sleep, get up the next morning, do it again and again and again and again. So it was hard to have that kind of moment where you could just sit and write. And also, I got one day I was writing in my journal that I had written in my journal, which I felt like made me feel like I was lapping myself. Yeah. Like, what did I do the day before? I was writing in my journal. And I was like, this is crazy. Documentation has gone nuts. And I stopped. I... I somewhat regret regret it, um, but it doesn't matter. But I mean, none of it really matters anyway. I, you'd said that. You said if it, in the same Huck story, which I thought was you'd burn up, it would all be okay. Yeah, of course. Completely fine. <laughs> doesn't matter. It's more the process, the journey. It's just the do. Yeah, the do. That, that, yeah. You're just doing it. So if yeah. it ends, it ends. Yeah. But I think if someone Every does, day I wake up, with something to do that I want to do. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. It was picking weeds earlier. It was then the... Yeah. Archive stuff. yeah. It is, I do you enjoy day. it? Do you enjoy the archiving? I do. Well, I love a de- detective work. That's what I really love. Yesterday... I could tell when you were showing me stuff, yeah. you were... I, it was, you know, this person. No, it was that... I mean, you fixed one of the entries. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for the data. Um, yesterday, I was looking... At, Someone recently sent me some scans of a article that was written in 1980, 19, 
80, the Teen Idols and the Untouchables, um, my brother's name is the Untouchables, and um, we went did a show at a place called Taj Mahal in Norfolk, Virginia. It's a, kind of a legendary show. We went down to this, just the two of us went down and we just completely, it was so rambunctious. Like we just, you know, it was like a new wave place. It's so weird that we were, I mean, just crazy that we went down there. But someone sent me a photocopy or a scan of a photocopy of an article written in the Virginian pilot. Wow. About that show. I had never seen it before. But in the, in the thing, there's photos. And one of the photos shows me and my brother, because <clears throat> we were like, like I forgot we were messing around, so we were dan- we were all like just rolling around on the floor and stuff during. I think it was a dudes, and they didn't like the record. If we would just jump up and down the floor, it would make the record skip. So in this photo, just seen you see it's all like like on the floor and stuff. And I thought this is incredible. And so I said, I just I want to see this photo because just a, it's a scan of a photocopy, right? And it's also from a newspaper, so you already have like the dots and all. It's like, yeah, you know, yeah. And I said. So then I looked at the photographer. So last night, I probably spent an hour doing research trying to find this person. I haven't found him yet, but I have some leads. This is – I love this stuff. Wouldn't the wouldn't the library or the local have the – what was the – not microfiche. What was the – Yeah, the, but I wanted the print of the actual negative. Wouldn't they have that when you can look at – like the newspapers would have the original. I used to be able to – when I was researching well, before the internet, you yeah. would have to search in the library of past yeah, yeah, yeah. newspapers. You might you, – well, you, a lot of times newspapers, what you have in the library is microfiche. That's what I was trying to right, think of. Right, but that doesn't have – that's just – those are like pretty low-res scans of the newspaper. You can read them. They're good for that. But, but if not you want the for phone, print. You, know, uh, you need to get to the negative, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get back to the source, detective. That's what I'm saying. You right. So I really love, I love that kind of stuff. In terms of archiving, like I love connecting the dots. In terms of finding things, like, just so satisfying for me. I had a guy. Um, you know, we started working on about five years ago. We started working on the correspondence. I had, I answered almost all my mail. I still answer a lot of my mail. Emails made it very difficult for me, but I try. Um, Thank you for answering mine. Sure. Um, <laughs> so when I, my process would be that I would answer, I get a letter, I would sit, I sit, <clears throat> I sit down at my desk, I answer a letter, and there's a box under my desk. When I finish it, I would put a check on the front of it, and I throw the letter in the box. So then, when the box got full, I would close the box up and stick it into some eaves. I have upstairs. I have these like sort of hidey holes. So. Basically, working with this woman Nicole Prokopenko, who she works for the Smithsonian Folklife Center. Um, you hear all those motorcycles? This is the Rolling Daily? Thunder. No, it's Rolling Thunder. The Memorial Memorial right. Weekend. They had this giant motorcycle rally. So on Fridays, right before it, you just hear motorcycles all day. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, Nicole works at Smithsonian Folklife Center, and she was actually maybe working for Folkways. Sort of connected, and I had gone down there, and that, so I was walking my room. I was introduced to her, and she was going through somebody a box of correspondence from a, a folk artist or a jazz artist. And I was oh, can I ask you some questions? Guy, I have all these letters. She came out and looked at the collection. She said, "I'll I'll work with you." So she and I have worked on this for ages and ages, um, breaking out the, getting it organized and and breaking it. So it's broken into four basic subsets. There's Discord, Meyer Threat, Fugazi, and then Ian. Uh, within each of those things are subcategories like friend, pen pal, um, like general correspondence, scene reports. 
scene reports is really cool. The kids just writing about what's going on in their scenes. Like there a guy from Des Moines talking about like this, the the band like there's you know the wow. band called the Targets. They're pretty cool, you know whatever you know like whatever, just stuff like that. Like and then um, I say in, in the Meyer Threat folders we have a section about um, we have a folder for like people writing about Straight Edge. We have one folder just about people upset with us for breaking up. <laughs> Fugazi is folders about suggestion. Um, so I have all these subsets. Anyways, really satisfying to break it all out into different things. It makes it usable. All this, you know, otherwise it's cardboard boxes filled with mail. And at some point during that time, I had a call from a guy who was working on a book about Eastern European punk. And he just wanted to know, he said he had met, talked to a guy from East Berlin who in the early 80s used to write to Discord. And um, we were no, we, notable for turn because we actually returned. We wrote back. Uh, and he's wanted to know whether I remembered this guy, turn. And I said, you know, mm, sounds familiar. You know, sounds familiar, but let me... You know, let me come, let me get back to you in a few minutes because I'm in the middle of something. Why well, didn't tell him that I had, we had this archive? So I went through it and I found the letters wow. from Turn. So I called. I said, "Yeah, I have the letters from Turn." And that guy was mine was blown. Then he said, "Can I get a, a photo? Can you scan it for me?" And I said, "No, I don't own what's written on those pages. Belong to Turn, not me." Oh, interesting. Right? You have to think about this stuff. So a lot of well, the letters like I have of what this. Yeah, you're of right. Of course. Though. And that's just one of the issues I have with this collection is that there's a lot of stuff in there that's super personal. And the photos are tough too because it's the figure out who the photographer is. And if that's a little less, that's a little oh, less really? tricky. I think it's less tricky because let's say you wrote me a letter about like I'm straight edge. So I wrote you about straight edge. Okay, Pretend. so then let's say you said you were writing about straight edge because um, your brother um, OD'd and that you and that you're you know you're you were abused as a child or whatever. Like, do you want me have that? You want that scanned and put You're up right. on the internet? So, if someone wanted me to get your letter, one day I say, like, well, if Tom calls me and gives me the green light, I'll do it. I, mean, I said, actually, what I tell people is, I will send the author a scan of it, and if he or she can decide okay whether it's right. up to them if they want to share it. But I can't share stuff. They personally, you're right. They pers- they sent you a personal letter to you. Right. And they own, they have the copyright on the stuff. But it's one of the reasons that I've been really reticent to place this stuff anywhere because I, I feel like I have a responsibility to all those people. Um, anyway, he said, can you send me a scan of this thing from this guy, Turn? I said, no. So I said, if Turn, I'll send it to Turn. And so I heard from Turn, <laughs> who couldn't believe I still had the letters. <laughs> um, there's something really, it was very satisfying about that whole, that exchange, you know, just I feel like, also, he's writing a book. It was useful for him to actually see the. There was actually a, a Swedish woman, an author here the other day, and she's talking about a book she's working on about these early punks. I said, "Oh yeah, I have letters from that guy," and she was completely blown away by it. That gives it other context that you wouldn't get otherwise. Correct. And that's why I feel like that's the importance of it, and that gets me excited if I'm the detective in me trying to figure out like, oh, well, that live performance is different because that guy was in this and this person was... It, right. It, it helps gives it context instead of it was just another show. Right. Yeah. And it's funny. There's a lot of times like I'll be working on something I'm like, well, this can't be right because we're 
wearing this pair of shoes, or I can look at the picture like that must be a different show. Or that city was right. <laughs> exactly. I just I'm just I notice stuff like that. <laughs> just the way my brain works. But I, so I I I probably enjoy it too much because there's other work that I don't get done. I get what so, other work are you supposed to be doing? Oh, you know, making records and stuff. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. Do you feel like that's slowed down from focusing on the archiving? Not slowed down, but that you've less time? Um, yeah. I don't know if it's not time. It's, it's that I think that I, the archiving thing is, can be sort of um, addictive. I just get into it and I think, oh, I should finish it. Like today when I, we were going through the letter thing and I noticed that the guy had the wrong, the wrong uh, city. I'd have to, you know, I probably should have made a note to myself to come back to it, but I thought I should just do it now. Otherwise, I'll forget. You're going to forget. Because that's the uh, Then the truck go by. Um, that's the other thing. Is that, like, you know, with a computer, if you don't act on it, you may, it's very hard to see what's undone. Like, I think I'm very tactile. So, like, a lot of times, like, what reminds me is what's on my desk, on my actual desk. And, like, I don't. So it's very difficult. Like with a computer, it's, there's nothing there. <laughs> you know, so it's just a plastic box or well, something. same thing with like the you know Spotify or Apple. Like I, right. if you go into your computer, if you don't have that to do list, it's just this almost it's right. blank. So right. I'm I'm very like in not bin box zero, but very like I'm gonna get this done and I'm gonna do it and I'm not gonna have to think about it again. Right, I'm, I'm in box twenty one hundred right now. <laughs> But that's just the way it goes. And more stuff's being sent in, right? People are sending in on shows. That's just my general correspondence. That's just my, yeah. Slow down, but it still goes on. It's so nice. What was really interesting is that, you know, when we did the live series, we had, we made, we we sold, we're not giving away this, the shows. We, we, we asked for five bucks because we thought it was funny because it's a $5 show, right? But, if you look closely, it's, there's you an can, option to pay less. And yeah. You can pay as little as a dollar, um, which many, 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 many people take advantage of, which is great. We don't care. Mostly, we spend an enormous amount of money and time to make this project, and we feel like people should contribute towards it. It's not just everything's free. You know, We want people to have a sense that like they were a part of it. Um, one of the things, at some point, I had, you know, we had this idea that we figured there were people we knew who were very well off, like spe- specifically musicians who would want to like be supportive of the project, but they would never suggest it and we would never ask. Um, so we came up with this idea of the all-access pass. The all-access pass is basically you just get every show, <laughs> and it's 500 bucks, right? $500, but you get for that you know, you get a thousand shows. So it's 50 cents a show. So we did it. We did the all access pass and we got like right away, like 20 or 30 people. Wow. Which is amazing. Right. Uh, and they were not, ironically, none of them were our rich music for fan, you know, rock band guys at all. It was all just people like dentists and people who were just, we're like this want to support the project. Yeah. And it made sense in the beginning. That was twenty twelve, right? Or twenty thirteen, somewhere around there. It's been quite a Seven while. Seven years. Wait, yeah. So, so so yeah, but that those things kinda of, you wouldn't you know, you kinda of, kinda of peter out. Every few months, still 
somebody would get an all access pass. Still another five hundred dollars, and I just it's and it was really interesting. I always send them a note from me, telling them thank you so much. They go, this is like your support for this project it really means a lot. Blah blah, and they never respond. Never. What? Never. Not once. And it's the email that was it's no dealt with me. whatever the no. I'm saying yeah. their email. Yeah. It's not like a. It was their. Yeah, but they're you know they're, they're the money was real and they got the all access, all access pass. But I always saw they got, I write to them. I'm saying, hey, once you know like this is what we've been working on. It's a crazy project, but your support is genuinely appreciated. Thank you very much. And you would think they'd say like it's so nice to be a part of it. No one ever writes. I don't know why. Interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting. I don't know what that's about. That's weird. Like, they didn't get it, or... They did get it. I think they just don't... I'm literally writing just a thank you note. And maybe they think, like, well, what can they say? Thank you for the thank you? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it turns into the thank you fest. Yeah. (laughs) But you, I sort of figure people, it's like, you know, wow, it's really cool that you would send it, whatever, whatever, but... And I don't know. I have. There's no way to know whether they actually listen to the shows because basically, what happens is you're when you get. An oh, you don't know, pass, right? No, you don't know. You just get basically your on your account page on the Discord site. You get a little tab that basically every show as it's uploaded it becomes available. So, but there's no way for us to, or if there is a way, I'm not aware of it. How to actually audit? But I actually don't really care. Yeah, no, that's doesn't not, matter. I actually yeah. don't ever. People often say, "Like, well, how many of you sold of this?" I go, "I have no idea. I just don't pay attention to stuff." They're up. Like that. They're there for people. Exactly. Yeah. I was struck in the very beginning because I was at some point like, "What? Are, what are the like most downloaded shows?" And the first show was the first, which makes sense. The last show was second, and that makes sense. But the third show was this really kind of random show from LA like this show that we did I think at the palace it was like 97 or 98 or something May 99 anyway I was like why like why is the palace why is this show I remember this show but I don't remember it being particularly interesting yeah and it was because we had a rating system that was, it showed it was like an excellent rating. Oh, for quality. Right. And this freaked me out because we decided early on, we did this site, we wanted to put, we thought maybe we should put the things in like roughly what the quality of the sound is so people have some idea. I mean, we also... It's actually the first thing I look at after I look at the, or I know what date, it's the second thing I look at is the quality. Right. And I think, and I actually argued strongly and should we ever redesign i'm going to try to push i'm going to get rid of the rating because <laughs> i think it's it's a red herring and i think that i find it very strange that people want to be like we have a sample usually i mean they're now operating systems are making them disappear but for years there was a way to listen yeah it's actually yeah the sample of them aren't so you can yeah. decide whether it sounds good or not um but the the rating system itself i remember when we first came up with the idea like okay well we'll do We'll do like a uh, four a star system, like you know four stars. So we're going to just have literally have little stars and they'd fill in. So when the first person who was helping us do this stuff, as he edited and he mastered and edited the songs, 
who write those shows, I said, just decide, like, one to four stars. And just, so when you send it through, just leave things like, this is a three-star or two-star, whatever it is, just let us know. While we were getting the site up and running, it turned out that the star thing was not going to work for, I don't know the technical reasons, but we had to go with text. So... Someone said, well, we could write one star, two star, three star. That, that's absurd. Let's write poor, good, very good, excellent. And that represents the four stars, right? So as I was uploading the shows and going through them, I started noticing that the guy that was rating them, he's being a pretty tough critic, <laughs> right? Like everything was like poor or just good. And I'm like, God, these songs, sound, these shows sound pretty good to me. Why are they getting, Yeah, you know, like the poor ones sound great. So I called him up and I said, are you, I'm confused. Are you being, and he said, no, like I'm doing, I'm doing the star system. And I said, he goes, yeah, like, you know, one star is the best, you know. I go, no. Oh, no. One star is not the best. It's the worst. And he's like, oh, he just didn't know. He How many did he go through before that? A couple hundred, right? Oh, man. So then I was like, okay, well, no big deal. Like, we'll just, like, flop them, flip it around. But the person who was working, one of the people working on it was a little dyslexic. And so it gets very confusing. So who knows what anything means, right? <laughs> and also, what's the criteria? We were just talking about the sound quality. But I would argue that a show like... Um, a different set list that was done on that tour. Or no, more, more to the point, like a show where, like, like... There's a show we did in Chicago where these skinhead guys took over the stage and we handed them our instruments... And they do an impromptu show in the middle of suggestion. Wow. That's fucking cool, right? That should be excellent. Right. In my mind, <laughs> the sound quality is not that great. Yeah. So the criteria, to me, it's so, it doesn't have any real meaning. After looking through, I would, I would take it away. And that would almost right. be like notes of, of note of the show, saying that. Well, yeah, I did, that's what I've tried to do. But that's, that's a lot of work. That's daunting. Um, when I looked at our site, I was like, we should get rid of the rating system because it doesn't make any sense. And if, and it was – I think the Palace shows, are, they do sound good. And, I'm, and people like them, that's great. But, man, I wish they'd hear the show where like, the power gets cut off and, they, and 400 Italians sing Waiting Room, a cappella, just amazing. drums. It's incredible, <laughs> right? It's incredible. Yeah, the that, show that would be excellent. Right, their show we did in Dallas where the police – shut the show down and made the crowd go stand out in the street and we played to an empty room and the, had the doors open. The music went into the wow. street from there. And on that one, kids, they basically the kids danced in the middle. They closed the street and the kids danced in the street. They were jumping off of parked cars and I found in the thing, actual, hold on a second. Yeah, yeah. I actually, someone sent me a recording that the, a kid had a tape deck with him out on the street. Recording that show. Recording the, yeah, from the outside. So he's on this, and you hear him go like, dude, hold my keys. I'm going to jump, I'm going to go out dancing or whatever. And you hear like, it's just so cool. It'd be fun to mix the show you recorded right. with that. It'd be hard to do. <laughs> I'm just saying it'd be fun. It'd be hard, yes. <laughs> but it's just so, it's just like, but it, so if you look at that one, the Dallas thing is Dallas 90. There's great photos from that, but the very end of it, there's a thing that says, outside the gig. You can actually hear, I included that in the mix. Those to me are more interesting, but I'm from a sociological point of view. Yeah, but you know, but if people just want excellent quality, then this depends what they think is excellent. Yeah, I like that. Um, 
I did want to bring up the word emo. Sure. Is that all right? So I know it's always had a checkered history. It was hated the first day that it was uttered, I think. Correct? Well, in D.C. in the mid-'80s, that time there was this stuff called like metalcore, and people were <clears> – <throat> the word core was being attached to everything. And we had a kind of a running joke, like ska core and, you know, and, you know, uh, you know, um, was there ska core and goth core and we just had stuff like that. And um, I'm pretty sure it was Brian Baker, who was the bass player in Minor Threat, and then Hughes and Dagnasty, which playing guitar. And I think he came up with emo core, which was short for emotional hardcore. And it was a joke. Like it was, and it was derisive. It was a little. He's making fun of us. When I say us, I mean really right to spring and embrace and lunch meat to some degree, and you know. But it was sort of a, it was a you know the mid '80s response to the um, what was happening in the shows, which was a lot of skinhead nonsense, and um, and uh, you know we were like, oh fuck you, You no. But Maximum Rock and Roll picked up on it. Tim Yohannan and he loved it because he Tim was a real purist in terms of punk like he liked it fast and hard he loved sweet like hardcore like metal almost metal he loved you know like metalcore he liked fast but he loved sorry Tim liked like Finnish hardcore like really extreme thrash stuff um, and he did not understand what we were up to here with Right to Spring uh, Embrace um so they were gleeful when they came across this emo core thing. So every review, oh, emo core, get out your hankies, you know. Um, which, by the way, was pretty apocryphal, this business about people crying at the shows. It's so ridiculous. I never um, thought it was crying. I always thought it was just – I always thought emo was – with the bands that I was seeing, or at least later in the 90s, were it was like the – it was a moment that you thought was going to break but didn't. It was more euphoria. It was more of a right a, a crescendo, right, and it keeping together like an overwhelming kind of moment, I guess. But the point being that the whole idea of we just saw we saw we were thought we're punks and we were just this is punk music by our because we said so. But so when people put this other thing on emo core in the beginning, it was really kind of derisive and was an insult in a way. Then there was these what I used to think of like backpack kids. Like the screamo or emo early stuff, and I saw that and I was like, "Well, these kids are going off!" Like they would play. I can't remember what was some of the bands. Like what years? Eighty nine, eighty eight, eighty nine, ninety. That early, just full bore screaming, like just yeah. just going off. And I, I get it. I can see why they could call this emo core because they're just like or screamo. It was like yeah. It was like it was like um, um, scream therapy. You know, and I understood it to that degree. Then it be- emo became sort of. Uh, I mean, it seemed to me to be sort of. Like once it became a genre, it was pretty. Like I found it to be. It was. It was sort of a more mid middle of the road kind of stuff. Like where it ended up being very kind of co- like radio play stuff or college yes. rock. You know. Yeah. Um, which was never what I was about anyway. Um, but I didn't really care. Except for people kept saying, like, you know, you guys invented it. And I was like, I'm not. We didn't invent anything. We just, we're a punk band, so we yeah. were making music. 
But things, names evolve or genres yeah. evolve. Well, the word punk. Yeah. The, it was, starts out as derisive, you know, and then people claim it and then it becomes something that, like, they redefine it. So yeah. I think that, I assume emo redefine it. I do think emo as a form, there's something a little comfortable about it for me. Like, the, the, the it's like comfort food. but And that, is, that doesn't resonate well with me. Like, it's too, not smug, but just... It's a different. It's just a different form, you know. Like I'm always sort of way. I just want to keep being weird. <laughs> so it feels too easy. I don't know. I can't. It's hard to really. I just don't relate to it on that level. Yeah. You know. Um, been I remember seeing bands that were referred to as emo, or bands that refer to themselves as emo, and never being like, well, "What? Is, what? Why? What is the? What is it? Like I don't see the thing. I don't see what the." You know, I I couldn't. It seemed like there was a variety of um, what made bands emo, and maybe a variety of reasons that people use that term. I mean, it's interesting when it hit the mainstream, and then the mainstream people think, you know, hair and the certain pants and a belt, and it turned into this, you know, fashion thing. I feel like that is permeated. So even if you do use the word, there's an instant snicker or an instant marginalization of. The genre, because of that, or maybe it was from the beginning. It was there was a snicker from Brian. Well, it was started as a snicker, yeah, for sure. So maybe that's yeah. that's the life that it's 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 it's. Continuing. I mean, it's weird to me. Like I have to say that you know, your if your podcast was called you know two by four, or if your podcast had been called, um, you know, washed up glass, rock. glass box. <laughs> yeah, I would have been more I would have been probably more quickly I would have more quickly been willing to speak with you but washed up emos I it, I know that was one up, of your first questions it was yeah. like what's the name and I mean you make stuff up you say it I just thought um, I thought it was uh, they're a little bit older and they're still respected and they're and again it was who's uh, they just the bands like bands music like right. I had thought that but it, it's a stupid name so it's ha- I've had happen where people don't want to be on um, or don't work or just because it's but also they were in a band that people would not listen to because they were associated with that word. Who? There's who would not who doesn't want to be on? I mean, or, no, no, no. Are they saying they're a band that people won't listen to because they've been associated with that word? Well, no, they try to distance themselves. So if if, uh, a, if a magazine had said X. They would try and distance themselves, and I think it's. I guess the words always had that feeling to it, or or they or people claimed it. True, you know. I mean, here's the thing about that kind of labeling, um, like rack racking or genre stuff, especially when it's nebulous. Um, Like when Fugazi started to tour, I would call ahead. And tell people when you book the shows, you cannot put Meyer Threat on the flyers. X Meyer Threat. Um, or if you do, you have to put Rites of Spring on, whatever, just to, but to making them actually make them engage. So it's not just like Meyer Threat, Meyer Threat, Meyer Threat. Yeah. My thinking at the time was is that if you use something like that, imagine like it was a horse and you can just put a rein on it and it pulls your cart. So use something to promote yourself, right? It's pulling you along. Um, 
same way with a genre like emo or something. You use that as a way to pull your band along into the into sort of the public eye. Well, at some point, that horse will die. And if you keep moving, you got to drag it behind you. It becomes an anchor. And that's the way I felt about like things like emo or taglines like that, where you if you if you if you tie on to that sort of thing, and like like you said, if they eventually put those, if it's going to become the minor threat flyer or name right. on all the Fugazi things, it's going to right always. Then we're always we're, if I had said you know minor threat, minor threat. If I used that to promote the band, it would have destroyed Fugazi because it would have been not. We wanted to go tour. As Fugazi, we played. I mean, our first tour, we had we we toured for almost a year with no records, or over a year with no records at all. Yeah. And the idea was go be a band, go play shows, and then by the time people we do put a record out, we will have established ourselves as a band, not as Minor Threat. It won't be like the reviewers going like, "Well, this is the new Minor Threat record." <laughs> it's like it won't. And even if they did, the four of us would be impervious because we know what the fuck we are. Yeah. We're a band. And that was sort of the idea. But the main thing was to not use something like a hook to pull us along. Like saying, like, trying to use something to promote us. Instead, let the music be the thing that people engage with. And let that be the deciding factor. So I think that, yeah, I think that, yeah, wash up, like the word emo, it was too nebulous to begin with. It was a joke to begin with. It became too nebulous. And I imagine for some people, um, it was something they were trying to get, they were using it to promote themselves, and now they kind of live with it, yeah. you know? That's the way it goes, you Or they're know? trying to run away with it, or run away from it. Right, but I think that, you know, at the end of the day, really, if you write great songs, then it doesn't really matter what you call it. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, I've definitely interviewed hardcore bands and punk bands, and so it's, it's people know that it's not just that, but it's, it's uh, you know... I think that the punk thing was a little more wide open... I think emo is a, a distil, 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 distillation of mm-hmm. uh, it was more of a it was a, almost more of a um, it was a subgenre because yes. like like you know in other words like I would say that emo is like people involved with emo were ostensibly part of punk yes but not all punks are part of emo it was it was all, I thought it was like from the hardcore scene like post hardcore oh yeah or even a hardcore even that that kind of like. Again, hardcore was punk, but not everybody who's punk was hardcore. You see, yes. there's a, it's like a so that's all. I'm just saying, like for me, the punk thing would what I liked about punk was that it was so undefinable, but also there was a certain um, it was not mar- at the time at least it certainly was not a marketing thing. Yeah, that's the thing. It tur- it the word w- then was marketed to, and later. then it later, and then maybe the anchor. Of that one band that kept using emo, right. dug in a little deeper, right? Once it well, hit. that's the thing is that a lot of the band. I think it's interesting you should say that because I think that the the labels that associated as sort of underground or punk labels, there were some that were pretty cheesy for sure. But I think that maybe in the in that sort of emo world, maybe some of the labels a little more. They were like Discord, for instance, was a punk, was and is a punk label. Um, um, and we make, for instance, we didn't and we don't use contracts. We've never used a single contract, right? I don't have a lawyer. So that's sort of unusual in terms of record labels. It's very punk in my mind. But I think a lot of the emo, the way people set up the emo stuff was very much, in that world, 
was much more orthodox. Like they were starting labels, and like they like we have contracts, and they're this making, could be a business, right? It's a business thing. So like there was a whole other kind of. Um, I think people were thinking this is a great way to like move our sell a bunch of so much right. records, and that's just a different. It was it's a different mission. I, that's I what know. I felt too. I felt yeah. like if I was going to see that screamo band in the mid '90s, and it was they had their seven inch and they made it themselves. They screen printed it. Printed it was different when the band that was using the word came back with right. the fancy sampler or right. the super rad screen print, whatever the one was. Right. Yeah. But I don't. But to be fair. And to be clear, I am not looking. I'm not. I got no disrespect for people. I'm not saying like I don't have. I just no. A word just, can go. Yeah. Take, take a life. I know. Of its but own. I just want to be clear. Like this is not. I'm not interested. I'm not pointing at no bands or saying nothing bad about anybody. I just more about the a, a phenomenon. I do think it's interesting. It's it's still around. Of course. Yeah. But that's amazing that that it's it survived. Yeah. You know, but it's because, but it's because the core of it is music, and music was here first. Music is—I mean, if you've read interviews with me, you've sure—I'm sure you've seen me. I've said music is the form of communication that predates language. So it's real. It's a real situation, and I think that um, something like how old are you? And you're you late thirties or something? I'm forty. You're forty. Okay. So, um, so when you were fifteen or sixteen or something. I assume music kicked your ass, um, and maybe you saw some bands at a time that were identified as emo, or whatever. And you're like, "Wow!" Like my the world just started to make sense to me in a way that it never had made sense to me before. And this was my soundtrack, so it's deep and it's real. Um, for me, I was. 16 or 17 when I saw the Cramps. I was 16 when I saw the Cramps, and so 17 when I saw the Bad Brains and. You know, when I saw those bands, I was like, the world, suddenly the world made sense to me. Um, and that, for me, was punk rock. Uh, so, so however the word lives, right, someone's so going to be 16, right. finding it at that moment. But I say punk is folk, is blues, is jazz, is is beat, is emo, is hip-hop. It's all one thing. It's just a free space. It's just a new idea. And it still goes on. There's something beautiful about punk because it's just the legs on this thing is crazy. Because you can still, there's still people who are punk that don't fit in with anything. I love that. Like the genre was not, like it's hard to be a, say, a ska band without playing ska. But punk is undefinable. Your brain is clay. What's going on? You picked up a Bible And now you're gone And it's in your head It's in your head It's in your head You call it religion You're full of shit It's in your head It's in your head in your head You call it religion You're full of shit You never have You never will 